0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Convo with Dr. Kate podcast. This episode is all about ICD codes. You may have heard from the foundation recently that we were successful in an application to the CDC for Phelan-McDermid syndrome to have its own ICD code. And in this episode, I chat with Annie Kennedy of the Every Life Foundation, who knows a lot about this process and what it can do for a rare disease. And we go into what the purpose is of ICD codes and why this is an important step forward for Phalen McDermid Syndrome. And next month, I am chatting with Jaguar Gene Therapy about a drug that they have in their pipeline for phelan McDermid Syndrome and what their progress is. So until next time. Hi, Annie, thank you so much for being here with me today.
1: Hi, I'm delighted to be here. I've been a longtime fan of yours and the foundation's, and so I'm thrilled to be invited. Thanks for having me.
0: So I'm thrilled to say that we had a really big recent advancement and that the Phelan-McDermott Syndrome Foundation recently received our very own ICD code after an application process for this. And we met with you towards the beginning of this process and your guidance and resources that you provided were a big part in helping us get there. But before we jump into ICD codes and and what this progress means, would you mind introducing yourself and your current role? Sure. So
1: um, I'm Annie Kennedy. I'm the Chief of Policy, Advocacy, and Patient Engagement with the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. And as a part of my role here, um, one of the first things I did when I came here to the foundation, I've been here about four years, was recognize an opportunity for us to create what um, I like to call the ICD Code Roadmap, which was um, a toolkit and a resource for communities that would want to figure out how to create ICD codes. Because what typically does happen is the rocks fall into the backpacks of foundations and patient groups. Um, this ICD code process is so critically important and something that so many people don't even know exists or is needed until is really, you're looking through the rearview mirror saying, gosh, if only we'd had this. And the reason I knew it was needed was because prior to coming here, I was with the um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy space for decades. And I was one of those who um, did the work and sat where you sat and did the heavy lift of nominating Um, a couple ICD codes and knew how difficult it was. And I'll talk a little bit more about what ended up happening when we didn't have an ICD code and why we learned we needed one. And then what happened once we had one. I'm so glad that you benefited from that and congratulations on now having
0: it. Thank you so much. It really is a fantastic resource, the roadmap, and I'm really fascinated to get into some of the details in a minute. So just for a little bit of context, the Every Life Foundation um, serves many different rare diseases, and you'd have a lot of really important initiatives, a lot of them around policy. Um, Is that how you would describe generally the Every Life Foundation?
1: That's a perfect description. That's great.
0: Great, and let's talk about what exactly an ICD code is. Um, So it stands for International Classification of Diseases, Um, but what is it exactly?
1: Yeah, so what I refer to it as and how I think of it is, it's essentially, it's a hashtag. And why that matters is that without it, so we all know in the rare disease community, we are really not seen very often and our diseases aren't known and they're not heard of. But what that means in the healthcare setting is everything is tracked and followed. So every time you have a medical encounter, there are codes associated with what you're being treating for, whether it's high blood pressure or pregnancy or foot fungus, there is a code. If you don't have a code for a very serious medical issue, a rare disease, and you're invisible. That rare disease is invisible in the system. And so that hashtag follows you and stays with you. It means that it counts.
0: So, a person with Phelan McDermid syndrome previously, uh, when they were diagnosed or just even in their medical record, they never really had one of these hashtags or one of these labels or codes that said Phelan McDermid syndrome. It might say something like, developmental delay or autism or a GI disorder that's associated with the disorder. And those things will likely continue to get coded as individual you know, issues that are associated, but they never had a Phelan-McDermid syndrome label on there. Um, so I'd love to talk about what that can mean. Um, so one of the things that I'm most excited about is the idea that once this code is implemented and widely used, we can better track the number of people with Phelan McDermott syndrome that are being diagnosed um, as opposed to having numbers solely based off of who comes to our membership. Numbers of people and prevalence are two of the things that drive forward a lot of our initiatives because you can argue for more support the more people you have. Um, But what kinds of other things could you track with a label that you wouldn't otherwise be able to, because you can't pull that data.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll just, I'll give you a couple of real world examples. Um, So one of them is in the summer of 2020, at the foundation, we had a conversation with the head of the division at CDC that oversaw, so there were two major COVID data trackers that were set up, one at NIH and one at CDC. And there is a division within CDC that oversees birth defects and developmental disabilities, and that division does the large percentage of surveillance in rare diseases. And there was a committee, the federal committee that was making the recommendations for our nation's health care around covid was basing it on what we were learning in real time. And remember, summer of 2020 was just the beginning of the COVID pandemic. So we didn't really know, we were just starting to mask. We didn't know who was most at risk. We were. It was really based on self-report. So pulling in real time data out of these registries was critically important because that's how then the federal government and CDC was able to turn around recommendations to the community around who should isolate. Should we mask? Who is at risk? What could we be learning? And so we went to CDC and asked whether or not we could do some cross-checking of data with people with rare diseases against the COVID data tracker so that we could be informing guidance for our rare disease community Mm -hmm. in the pandemic in real time as well. Because again, we could assume that people with rare diseases and who are immune compromised were at higher risk. But again, we didn't have data yet. So we wanted to use that COVID data tracker. And they said to us, they really wanted to do it and they really wanted to work with us, but there were not enough ICD codes to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's a perfect example of, we need more ICD codes in rare disease. Because without that data, during the COVID pandemic, we couldn't do sort of a search, if you will. If you think of how you do data searches or you look up something in mm-hmm. Google, we didn't have enough analytics to do the search to say, how would people with rare diseases be affected in real time in these data sets? So, I One thing I want to say is that as an individual living with a rare disease, your personal experience of your doctor's visit won't change having it. A- as Mm -hmm. ICD codes. Like you wouldn't know if you weren't watching this, if you weren't tied into the community, you wouldn't know like nothing about your encounter changes. We will have a better understanding as you just said about who's living with PMS outside of who's already known in the registry, where people are, what the patient experience might look like. And then once we get a little further down the road, once you're I mean, it's gonna take probably about a year. Then the community will be able to actually start to look at what are some of the costs involved? Like you'll have enough data in some of the health systems that you'll have a better understanding of what are some of the economic impact impacts within direct cost data. What are some of the cost drivers? What does the diagnostic odyssey begin to look like? Like you'll actually, there will be some very powerful data will be able to inform some of the work that you may want to do on a policy or advocacy level to improve patient experience.
0: So just to summarize, a really key point that I think is important is that this is really kind of a, a practical thing of being able to search. So your example with COVID or your example with um, economic burden is, you know, now this code allows you to actually track the data that was already there, already in someone's health record. It says Fallon McDermott syndrome, but it's Mm -hmm. not easily extracted. And just as an FYI, this would not be an invasive thing. It's not like we're searching on your, your name or any of your personal information, but rather that we can collect general data. So number of people, as you mentioned, where they are, you know, if you have a concentration of people um, that is a lot higher than you might have thought. then maybe you could argue for better services in that region for certain things, or if you if you know that now you can pull economic burden data, then you can argue for better support for things if if people are having extended hospital stays and things like that. Um, it's I've also heard from pharmaceutical companies directly that, they will sometimes require an ICD code as a first step or threshold before being completely invested in developing a drug in their pipeline for a disorder because um, any number of reasons, it helps you know to collect more data, but also it just is more official and more recognized. And so they almost use it as a starting point to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these things, And then on top of that, it's important for receiving um, insurance reimbursement um, because that is what's tied in the medical record to certain certain services and treatments related to that syndrome. The point was well taken also about what it isn't in terms of the patient's experience going into the doctor. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you go to the doctor and now physicians will know what this rare disease is upon the first time of seeing you. Um, it's more so that they can now select it as an option, and especially if you encourage them to, um, that will go into the record and help all this other data be collected. Um, so jumping off of that, I one of my questions for you was how do we help campaign to make sure the code is used? Is that education of physicians? Is that education of families? I've heard that some groups have cards that their families take in to say, this is our code uh, to be used. What are your thoughts on that?
1: It's probably um, a little bit of a both. And I think it's probably more though education of the medical community. um, Mm -hmm. And And your specialists, the people you see all the time, will be the first to know. It's probably more some of those ancillary professionals, your um, therapists, OTs, PTs, who probably won't be the first people that hear about it. So those would be some of the people I would also make sure that you're working with. Mm-hmm. Because they're also coding encounters and have some really rich data that you wanna make sure is getting attributed and connected. Um, So those would be some of the folks that I would make sure that I I do really like the idea of some type of card or something that's easy uh, to share. And after a little while, it's one of those things that hits an inflection point and it just, there's uptake within the community. Um, But I do think at the beginning, I do think just letting people know that the code exists is a really good thing.
0: And I've learned and correct me if I'm wrong that sometimes the process of getting a code added to a record can be can vary. So in some hospital settings, it is done by the physician and they, you know, select it in a drop down um, or it could get assigned later by a medical coder who is reading through the record and assigning um, you know, a name of a disorder to a code as long as it has one. So I guess physicians won't always know uh, exactly what codes have been attributed, or would need to maybe refresh themselves on it. Um, it but it is an important point of it's not so forward facing. To your point, they
1: may not see the code, but they can actually then say to the coder, "We need to be assigning the proper code." Yes. Um, and so I. I, that's the other reason why I like the idea of the card, because it's just one more, I mean, we all have a million things when we get to the doctor, right? And we're really busy and then you're managing, you know, your child in a really uncomfortable setting. I think having this postcard is just one thing that you can hand to somebody and say, we also want to make sure that this code's being utilized with this visit because it's new and it's important to us that we be trackable. And then that's the proper code being used. I mean, it just makes it an easy conversation, non-confrontational. Please use our code. We worked really hard for it.
0: Theoretically, over time, if we did you know, nothing, the code would start to be used to some degree. But if you have advocacy amongst the clinicians, amongst the patients, and between the coders to use it frequently, use it well, that can really help us collect the proper data. Um, that's right can the code once it's approved in October be used internationally? Or is there work that needs to happen to ensure that it can be adopted internationally? How does that work?
1: That's a great question. So there, so this entire coding ecosystem is a part of the World Health Organization's ecosystem. That's where sort of this all started. Um, this code that you have received as a part of what's called the ICD-10 classification of diseases. So this is the 10th wave, if you will, or iteration of the uh, diseases classification. WHO and outside the US, they are um, just in the process of implementing ICD-11 outside of the US. And so they've gone through a very lengthy process to update the codes, and the structure of the codes and are already implementing ICD-11. In the US, it took us many, 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 many years to go from ICD-9 to ICD-10. So to sort of catch up with that integration and that update. Um, So it will take a while for us to sync from uh, 10 to 11 here in the US also and to sync that structure. So there will be a process for the syncing of any codes that are being updated here in the US with those that are in 11, and then anything that's been added in the meantime. Um, So that will be a separate process that will happen Um, and will involve lots of very smart coders who are gonna look at what's on 11, what's on 10, what has to do to marry them. And that could be its own separate podcast. So I'll just sort of leave it at um, letting you know that for now, what will happen is in October, the codes will change here in the US Mm -hmm. with PMS being added to the US structure. And then when the syncing happens, the new PMS code will be a part of those codes that are considered for the syncing with the 11 structure.
0: And and that was part of the advice that we received from a lot of people before starting that because we are applying in the US, mm-hmm. that we, it would be a while until we shifted over. And so it still made sense at the time of application to apply to ICD-10.
1: Um, Absolutely, 100%. Because I mean, it literally could be 10 years.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes, it makes sense. Um, and so we will keep the community updated with, um, you know, any change in classification or internationally, how and if the code will be used. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about the process of getting a code, um, because you did mention, and we have heard in the community also, that this can be a process that doesn't always, um, isn't always successful immediately, or that can take some time. And you also need to be prepared as a patient advocacy group. Um, So I wanted to mention that all of the things that have been done up until this point in Phalan syndrome research of a long-standing natural history study, of having a lot of medical advisors who have been with us from the beginning, um, having medical literature, all of that, you know, our, our patient data um, from the registry, all of that helped to form definitive information on phelan McDermott syndrome, which is required to apply and say, this is a disorder that, you know, we know follows these features. This is what all the research says. This is a well-established disorder at this point, even if it's rare and we need a code to track it. Um, So can you speak a little bit to what, what are the challenges or what's the process in general? Why would this not be something that would just automatically happen?
1: I mean, I don't work for the ICDCM, for the committee, um, and I do believe that there should be many more codes than there already are, but coding is complex and complicated, Um, and it does require a significant amount of evidence to be brought forward to justify the creation of a code and to fit it within the existing Taxonomy or organization, there's sort of an anatomy of a code that you had to learn how to navigate in order to propose the new codes and the new coding structures and without disrupting that sort of ecosystem of the coding. Um, And so while it on the surface sounds like it should be easy, well, why can't we just have a new code so we can track somebody? Everything has to connect to everything else. And it actually is, you know, I would go to these meetings. Um, at the um, Division of Health Statistics and listen to the conversations of the coders, and it really would just make your like head spin of how technical this really was. So mm-hmm. I do have a significant degree of appreciation for the people that oversee this system and the importance of the complexity of the system. Um, that being said, I actually don't think it should be as hard as it is for groups to advocate for the addition of codes for well-established disorders that have been meeting scientific and clinical work where clinical care standards are being developed or registries have been established. As far as I'm concerned, it shouldn't be the work of an advocacy group. This shouldn't be one of the things we have to do, but like so many other things, if we're not going to care about it, I don't know who is. So I'm really, again, I'm grateful to you for your leadership in this.
0: So it's another, it's another practical issue of who is going to bring it forward and who is invested enough in this to present this evidence. And oftentimes that does end up being patient advocacy groups. And just for a little bit of context for families, the process um, involves submitting an application. Um, to the CDC with information about our disorder, Um, all of the information we just talked about that's been collected over many years. Um, This was written up by myself, but also a lot of our medical advisors and our scientific advisors. And we had help from an ICD coding expert who was recommended by Annie, which was fantastic. And we did get invited to present this to the CDC, which was done by one of our original founders and leaders and MD, uh, Curtis Rogers. And then after that, there's a period of time for support from other people in the community who know a lot about and dermin syndrome or for um, comments from coders or other associations about any issues with the way this code has been presented. Um, so it is a long-term process. It took us about a year, but any one of these stages can be a lot longer just depending on volume and other factors and how it's presented and that could be um, significantly longer from 18 months to almost two years depending on um, how long each stage lasts. Um, So I would love to talk about some of the examples that you mentioned in Duchenne or anything else you're aware of of access to treatments or What kinds of specific things did you see progress from having a code?
1: Yeah, I'll just give you um, one very succinct example from Duchenne. Duchenne initial, so Duchenne muscular dystrophy is one of um, the subtypes of muscular dystrophy. And we initially had been a part of a broad um, category of muscular dystrophies. So we had a broad ICD code for all of the muscular dystrophies. But that tends to water down your data when you might have some milder forms of disease in with the more severe forms of disease, um, those that may have a lesser economic impact with a, a more severe economic impact. And so what ended up happening was, fast forward many, many years, we ended up with our first approval in 2016 for Um, a product for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So we're in the access environment now and payers are trying to inform their decisions and trying to decide whether or not they're going to add this product to their formulary. And what we ended up having is payers use whatever available data to inform that decision. So they're looking at their economic data, they're looking at surveillance data, and they use the ICD code that's available to them. And we did not have yet an ICD code specific to Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So they used that broader burden data, and then they also used that broad ICD code, which was causing them to sort of grossly overestimate what the budgetary impact would be of adding that product to their formulary. And so... Fast forward, so that was 2016. Our ICD code went into effect in October of 2018. So we were doing the nomination at that time because it was underscoring the importance of needing the ICD code. So we've since gone and done a look back, and we've had a couple of our industry partners do a look back to see now how it's being utilized. And we have seen a significant uptick in Duchenne specifically of the ICD code helping inform Um, How clinical trials are designed, where we can conduct clinical trials, where patient populations are living, how much it costs to um, actually go through a diagnosis, and we're using that for um, purposes to advocate for newborn screening in Duchenne, because we have that data now, but we can only collect that data starting in 2018, because we didn't have that data before 2018. So those are just some examples of how having that ICD code enables us to use broader data sets, now available through direct healthcare data, to understand what the lived experience is of patients and then make changes so that we can change outcomes for patients
0: with that data. Um, Does it generally help to have more resolution in this information to get access to things and to collect more data or does it ever Hurt um, to have more resolution. Have you heard of examples of having a really specific ICD code preventing access or making things harder in the drug process um, if there's if there is a specific code?
1: I I'm not saying it has never happened. I am not aware of a time when having an ICD code was detrimental to a community for any reason. Now, communities work very hard in the process that you described in making sure that they're super informed in how they approach the ICD code so that they don't have a code that's too broad or too narrow, but that is a part of that process that you described and is something that CDC works with the community on and the scientific community works with the nominator once groups have gone through that thoughtful process. I am not a layer of a time when that has been harmful or detrimental to a community.
0: I can certainly attest to that thoughtfulness. And we certainly went through that with our consultants and all of our medical and scientific advisors and framed this in the most um, general but accurate definition of phelan McDermott syndrome in a way that would encapsulate everyone. But we are absolutely thrilled to be moving forward and to have this code. And Q93.52 is our new code. And we will certainly give more information on how families can help advocate for this, especially in the U.S. Um, And I think those were all the questions I had. So thank you so much, Annie, for joining us and for all of your information leading up to applying and the support And I've personally sent many people to the Every Life resources because they were critical for us. Um, So I really appreciate your time. Do you have any last comments?
1: Oh, I just, again, wanna say thank you and congratulations to you and the entire team, but the entire community. We really look to the Phelan McDermott Syndrome Foundation for so many resources and for your leadership. Um, And this is just one more way that you've really shown that the rare disease community really can do anything. So congratulations.
0: Thank you so much. And we will see everyone next time.
1: Thank you.